Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. O Lord and Master of my life, deliver me from the spirit of slothfulness, meddling, ambition, and vain talk. Bestow upon me, your servant, the spirit of purity, humility, patience, and love. Yes, O Lord and King, grant that I may be aware of my own sins, and not to judge my brother. For thou art blessed unto ages of ages. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. Our speaker this evening entered the Order of Friars Minor Capuchin in 1966, was solemnly professed in 1970, and was ordained to the priesthood in 1972. Father Thomas Wynandy earned his BA in philosophy at St. Fidelis College, his MA in systematic theology at Washington Theological Union, and his doctorate in his historical theology at King's College, University of London. He has held academic positions at Georgetown University, Mount St. Mary's College, Franciscan University of Steubenville, Loyola College, and the University of Oxford. Author of numerous books, Father Wynandy has served as the president of the Academy of Catholic Theology, chief of staff for the U.S. Bishops Committee on Doctrine, and member of the Vatican's International Theological Commission. Please join me in welcoming back to the Institute of Catholic Culture, Father Thomas Wynandy. Welcome, Father. Good to have you with us. Good to be with you. Yes, thank you. Thank you. As I said, it's an honor to be back again. It's a privilege to be able to speak to you, especially on this great feast as we were just hearing uh, uh, from Father Hezekiah uh, of Palm Sunday. <clears throat> and uh, uh, so it's, it's marvelous to, to be with, with all of you. Uh, the topic this evening is uh, Does God suffer, uh, which I think is, in a sense, a good topic for uh, the beginning of Holy Week of Palm Sunday. In Palm Sunday, Jesus entered into Jerusalem to be the king, but before he could be the king, uh, he had to go through the uh, his passion and death and suffering. And we must remember, as we'll talk about as we go through the lecture, the talk, that this is the Son of God who is doing, <clears throat> doing all of this, uh, the Son of God who became man and became incarnate, and through his suffering and death has he achieved our salvation, uh, the forgiveness of our sins, the vanquishing of death, and ultimately through his resurrection being able to bestow on us um, uh, eternal life, that we would rise from the dead as he himself <clears throat> has risen from the dead. So we chose this topic because of um, Palm Sunday and Holy Week, but also because um, uh, for another reason as well. I, some of you probably know this, uh, but some of you may not. Uh, but since the latter part of the 19th century, the 1800s, and all the way through the 20th century, 
uh, even to a certain extent into the 21st uh, uh, century, almost all theologians, all theologians throughout the world, it's going to be incredible, but uh, both Protestants and Catholics uh, concluded that God suffers as God uh, and that Jesus in becoming man not only suffered as man, but he suffered as God as well. And so much was this the case that one theologian ter termed it the new orthodoxy, that this is what the church and Christianity uh, now believes about, about God. Uh, but such was not the understanding from the very beginning of, of Christianity, beginning with the apostolic fathers and down through the ages. Uh, the, the theological tradition within the church and even among the Protestant denominations was that theologically and dogmatically, uh, it was believed that God is immutable. That's a big word, but immutable means that God does not change. He does not change. And also that God is impassable, another big word. But what it means is that God, God does not undergo emotional changes of state. He doesn't start out being happy and loving and then gets angry and then repents. Um, but he is impassable. He doesn't go through these emotional changes of states like you and I do. And moreover, they believed that God, the Son of God, did not change in becoming man. He remained immutably unchangeable himself in his divinity. And nonetheless, he became man. He came to exist as man. We'll talk about this a little bit later because it would seem that the word become it denotes a change, that anything that becomes must change in, this, in the becoming. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Uh, but the church believed that while the Son of God did not change in becoming man, because he actually existed as man, he was truly born. He truly suffered. He was truly thirsty. He th truly got hungry. He got tired. And ultimately that he actually suffered and died on the cross. But he did this as man, not as God. Now, the question arises, why? Why was there this radical change over the course of a hundred years, uh, even to our present, present time? Why did all the theologians stop believing that God was unchangeable, immutable and impassable, and come to believe that God was mutable and passable? There's a number of reasons, and I'll, I'll run through them uh, quite quickly, but I think they're important reasons because uh, they're very compelling in a way, uh, especially emotionally, emotionally compelling. <clears throat> the first reason was uh, human suffering itself. They argued, surely God suffers with those who suffer. Would God, a loving God not suffer with those who suffer? And one of the reasons this came to the fore was 
the wars that took place, the First World War, the Second World War, uh, the poverty that existed in so many countries, especially, for example, in the 18th century in England with the Industrial Revolution, all you have to do is read Dickens' novels to see the poverty and the suffering of the lower classes. Uh, natural disasters, uh, we read about them all the time. Surely God suffers with those who suffer. But the icon, the icon of this movement was Auschwitz, the Holocaust. Surely God suffers in the midst of all the suffering that took place at the Holocaust. And the, 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 the Auschwitz as a concentration camp became the icon. Surely God suffered in, in Auschwitz and Birkenwald and all the other, other places. Uh, and so that was the first reason, one of the reasons. Also, if you read the Old Testament, it would seem that God does change, as I mentioned earlier, but uh, that God does change, and he is passable, that he does suffer. God reveals himself to the Israelites of being a personal God, and as a personal God, he's loving and compassionate. Uh, he's engaged in time and history. He makes a covenant with his people. He frees them from the Egyptians. He knows their suffering. You know, he said, I've heard your cry. I've heard your cry. And I'm going to free you from the slavery of Egypt. The prophets speak of God being grieved over sin, even angry, becoming angry with the people because of their sin. He promises them that he's going to punish them. But then he repents. He repents of his anger. He forgives their sins. He shows them mercy and compassion. And the thing is, surely then, if God's going to be a loving God, they argue, he has to be able to suffer, suffer with his people. God's suffering with us is an expression of God's love. They also argued that because God suffered within the Old Testament and throughout history, that because of this suffering, that was the motivation for him, for the Father to send his Son into the world and for the Son to become man. And therefore, the cross itself becomes a sign of God's suffering throughout of history, even before the Son of God became man. It's his suffering that motivated him to send his Son into the world. And then Jesus, in becoming man, not only suffers in his humanity, but if that suffering is supposed to be real, it has to affect his divinity. On the cross, he suffers in his divinity, the suffering that he always experienced prior to becoming man. And some even conclude that the father suffered because he's lost us. And my son, my, Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We heard it in the gospel today. Uh, not only is the son feeling abandoned by the father, but the father now feels abandoned by, from, from his son. 
Well, the question arises then, these being the main arguments for concluding that God suffers and God changes, um, why then <clears throat> did Christianity for two centuries think that God was immutable, that he didn't change, that he was impassable, he didn't suffer as God, he didn't change his mind, he didn't repent. Well, the answer that they gave and still do is because the church took over Greek philosophical thought. Greek philosophical thought was smuggled into the Christian God. And so the immutable and impassable God of the Greek philosophers became the God of Christianity. God now, they claim, became inert, lifeless, apathetic, aloof, uncaring, because he was statically immutable. He just couldn't change, and he was impassable. He just didn't care. Now, as I said, and you might think, oh, those are not bad arguments. Those are not bad arguments, uh, especially emotionally. Uh, how are we going to, to answer them? them? Uh, is what they say true? Is it really in accord with the Old Testament? Is it really in accord with the gospel? Is it really in accord with what the church taught theologically and dogmatically for 2,000 years? I do not think so. As a matter of fact, I think if what they say is true, the gospel, in a sense, disintegrates. It's not really the gospel at all. So in response to them, I want to first look at the Old Testament, because this is the place where they think they, they have a, uh, a real uh, hook on God being uh, passable and changeable uh, because of what's said in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, there's no doubt, there's no doubt. If you, read the, if you read the Old Testament, the Old Testament speaks as though God changes. It experiences all kinds of emotional changes. However, to understand those statements properly, we need to look at God, what God reveals about himself in a broader understanding, taking a broader view of what God reveals about himself uh, in the Old Testament. Now, the thing you need to understand, first of all, is that it's because of God's action in time and history, particularly with the Jewish people, that he reveals who he is in himself, sort of his imminent, the, the imminent acts within time and history. The way he acts in time and history reveals who he is as the transcendent God, the God who is, in a sense, outside time and history. And so one of the things that becomes very evident in uh, the Old Testament is that there is only one God, one God. Now, in one sense, to say there's one God, you're making him numerically singular. There's only one God as opposed to many gods. But within the Old Testament, it's not just designating God as a singular being, that there's only one God and not many gods. 
it's also seen by the fact that there's just one God. He's different from everything else that exists. Nothing exists like the one God. The one God is not only just one singular, he exists in a manner that differs from everything else that exists. Secondly, the Old Testament reveals that God is the Savior. Now, how is God the Savior? He's the Savior in the sense that he's not frustrated by, he's not frustrated by worldly power, nor by the vicissitudes of history. No political power, no political ruler can frustrate what God wants to do when it comes to save his people. Not even Pharaoh, not even all the tribes that, that the Israelites had to fight to obtain the Holy Land. God was their savior. He, he gave them the promised land. He saved them from all his enemies. He saved David and made him the king of the whole of Israel. Uh, and the reason God is a unique savior is precisely because, again, he's the one God. There's no one exists like him, and therefore he has the power, the transcendent power to say that the world and all its power and authority cannot hinder him. And as the Savior, he made a covenant with his people that they could now relate to this one God who is their Savior in a manner in which no one else can relate to, the, to, to that God. He is their God, and he is, they are his people. And that leads to the third reason God is uniquely God. And that is the Israelites came to believe that he is the creator, the creator. And because he exists as the creator, again, he, different, he, he exists in a different manner from all else that exists. You see this in the opening chapter of Genesis. It delineates everything that God creates. Each day, God's creating something. The sun, the moon, the stars, the fish, the animals, the trees, the plants, ultimately creates man and woman. But all of these things that he creates are not God's. He's the singular God who can bring them into existence out of nothing. No one else can bring things into existence out of nothing, but he has the ability to do so. And why? Because as he revealed to Moses, he is the one who is. I am who am. I am the one who truly exists. He exists in and of himself. And because he exists in and of himself, he has the ability to bring other things into existence. Again, he's singular in his manner of existence. And lastly, I want to point out that he reveals himself to be all holy. To be all holy is to be cut off from all that is profane and sinful, the world of change. God is the all holy God. And as the all holy God, he has the power to make what is worldly and profane holy. He has the power to make sinful people holy. Only God embodies holiness that is enab enables him to make others holy. 
Now, it's these three, these four attributes or understanding of God, again, makes him unique. He does not exist in the created realm. He doesn't exist as some finite being. He transcends all that is finite. And what we then find is that in the Old Testament, God is all loving and he's all perfect in his goodness and he's perfect in his holiness. He does not change in his goodness, love, and holiness. He does not become more good, more loving, more holy, nor does he become less loving, less good and loving. He's perfect and unchanging in who he is as the all good one God who loves and is holy. Now, the conclusion that I want to draw from all of this is that when we hear statements, when we read statements in the Old Testament, that says God becomes angry with sin, or he expresses his forgiveness and compassion when he promises to punish, but then changes his mind. All of these seeming changes are mere expressions of the perfect love of God. He's angry with sin because he's all holy. He expresses his anger at the people because he wants them to be all holy. When they repent, they, express, they, they experience his love, his forgiveness, and compassion. But it's not that he's changing from one emotional state to another. It's that it's his love being all perfect, his goodness being all good, and his holiness being all holy. The people express, experience this goodness, this love, this holiness, depending upon where they stand in relation to God. And so, yes, God is angry at their sin, but he's angry at their sin because he's perfect goodness. All perfect loving God cannot help but be, in a sense, angry at what is unholy and ungood and unloving. And so the expressions do give a literal truth. God is angry. God is forgiving. God does repent. God seems to change his mind. But it's not because he's changing. It's because the people, the world in which he's related to, that is changing. And so it's very important then that we see that, that while the Bible, the Old Testament speaks of God changing. He doesn't change like we do, but it's because he's perfect in goodness, perfect in love, that we experience his unchanging love and goodness, depending on where we are. As the Old, people, old Testament people uh, experienced it. Likewise, then, when we come to the fathers of the church, they did uphold God to be immutable and impassable. You don't find those words, those words in the Bible. It never says in the Bible, God's immutable or God's impassable. And so they did take these Greek words and they used them. 
but they used them precisely to protect the biblical understanding of God, to ensure God's transcendent goodness, his perfect goodness, his perfect love, and his perfect holiness. They, they use these to, to, to deny whatever, whatever interfere, whatever undermine, whatever make less perfect God himself. And so they did not use the terms immutable and impassable to say that God was lifeless or inert or unloving or absent or static. No, no, it's, it was for the, exactly the opposite reasons. They wanted to make sure that the perfect goodness and holiness and love, love of God was, was proclaimed and that nothing would ever detract from that goodness and love that God is. Some of the fathers spoke of the passionate impassibility of God. What do they mean by saying that, talk about the passionate impassibility of God? Well, what they're trying to say is God may be impassable, but he's impassable because he's perfectly passionate in his love. He's impassable. He doesn't change because he's perfectly passionate in his goodness. He's impassable in his holiness because he's perfectly holy. Uh, and so everything he does, in a sense, is you can't get any more passionate than God is because he's all good and holy and loving. And, and the fathers of the church wanted to uphold that uh, to, to, to the empty dream. Uh, and it was these terms, these big Greek terms of immutability and passability that they saw protecting, protecting God, perfect, 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 perfection. When we come to Thomas Aquinas, um, God, again, is perfect. And being imperfect, he's immutable and impassable. But Aquinas talks about God being loved perfectly in act, loved perfectly in act. His love is, is perfect in its actuality. It can't be, his love cannot be perfected in any way. It's actualized perfectly and completely. <clears throat> and so he's unlike us. All of us as human beings, we're what might be called an act potency relationship. We, we have to, we're, we're in potency to love, but we have to actualize that love. And we have to actualize that love uh, in different situations and in different kinds of way. But God is not that kind of way. He doesn't have to actualize. Uh, for example, let's take an example of a parent. A pa the child runs out in the street. The mother gets angry, but she gets angry out of love. She doesn't want her child to get run over by a car. She drags the kid back and smacks him in the rear end. Well, at least they used to be able to do that. But, but, they, <laughs> but, but she does it out of love, okay? Then when the child cries, she hugs him and says, oh, I'm sorry, you know, I forgive you for doing that, but don't do it again. Uh, she sacrifices day after day for her child, but she's constantly actualizing her love, but God's not in that situation. God, in a sense, because he's love 
fully in act, fully actualized. In a sense, he's always in go position. All the facets of love for Aquinas are actualized completely. So his love is mercy fully in act. His love is, again, for kindness fully in love, forgiveness fully in act. Uh, in a sense, his hatred of evil is fully in act. You know, there's no one who hates evil more than God, because again, he's all loving and good. He's compassion fully in act. And so to begin, like in the Old Testament, as with the fathers of the church, Aquinas sees that it's not that God goes from being angry to being merciful to being kind and whatever. It depends on where we are at in relationship to God that we experience God's love in different kinds of ways. If we sin, we experience God's love in rebuke. If we repent of our sin, we experience this at compassion. When we good, do good deeds, we experience God's love as a joyful approval. Uh, as I said, God doesn't have to actualize different responses for different people. Can you imagine if God's up in heaven and you got a billion people, 10 billion, how many people on earth, and he's trying to respond to them in different ways. Joe down in Africa is doing something good. I'm joyful. Oh, there's John over in Timbuktu. He just committed adultery. No, I'm angry. And there, there's uh, somebody else over in, in uh, British Columbia or uh, Northern Virginia. Some of them are doing good, and he, he just becomes a whirly gig of different emotions. He can't, he can't possibly keep, no, he's not that way. Uh, you know, he is always perfectly loving, and, and how we experience his response depends on where we're at, not where he is, okay? And so Aquinas also makes a very, very important um distinction here, a very important distinction. The word compassion means to suffer with. And those who promote a suffering God use this, you know, if God's compassionate, he has to fulfill the word compassion, which means suffering with. But Aquinas points out that when we have someone we love who is sick or injured or having a problem, we do suffer with them. We, we have empathy with them. Uh, but uh, we also, because of our compassion, we want to relieve them of the suffering, the cause of the suffering uh, that they're undergoing. You know, if a person is sick, we want to take them to the doctor and the doctor's compassion and he's going to give them hopefully the medicine that will take away the illness so they are not suffering from the illness. The problem is many times we cannot solve the problem. The person's sick and he's not going to get better and he's going to die. And that's it. A person's out of work. We may suffer with that, but we can't find that person a job. But Aquinas points out the true compassion is being able to get rid of the cause of the suffering. That's real compassion. And that's exactly what God does for Aquinas, well, for the gospel. The cause of ultimately all suffering is sin. 
with its primary and ultimate effect of death. And God and his compassion, he's the one who destroys, destroys the very cause of all the suffering that we experience. Because he does away from sin, he conquers death, and he promises eternal life where every, every tear will be wiped away. And that's what we're celebrating uh, this coming Holy Week. God's answer to the suffering and the evil in the world. And he did this in a manner which is incredible, which we would never imagine. You know, all the people, the prophets in the Old Testament, they prophesied about things that they would have been surprised in the way that they were fulfilled. A virgin bearing a son who will be called Emmanuel. Did they ever really think Emmanuel would truly be God with us as a man? They would have never imagined that. All the suffering servant songs, would they ever imagine the son of God would become man and fulfill those suffering servant songs on the cross? They talked about giving us God, washing us clean from sin taking out our stony hearts and giving us a heart of flesh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that would wash us clean. Did they ever think of a Holy Spirit coming to us in the sacrament of baptism? Did they ever think of God being with us in the Eucharist? No, but God in his love fulfilled those prophecies in a marvelous manner by sending his son into the world. John proclaims in his prologue that the word was with God and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he did so precisely to recreate us, recreate us and make us new. The word that recreated us at the dawn of creation, making us in the image and likeness of himself. And so a child of the father, that same word now becomes flesh to recreate us in his own image and likeness so that we can be truly the father's children in the likeness of the risen Jesus himself. So when John proclaims that the word became flesh, we have to understand this uh, clearly because John is using the word become here in a manner in which it's never been used before. Uh, precisely because God never became man before. No being has ever become another being without losing the being that was in the first place. But John, so John's using the term become in the first place. So, uh, you know, when we normally think of becoming, uh, we think of change. A young man or woman becomes a doctor. They change from not being, not being a doctor to being a doctor. But we plant a seed. The seed changes from being a seed to being an oak tree or a cherry blossom tree. For us who live in the Washington, D.C. area and are enjoying the cherry blossoms now, uh, a caterpillar changes into a butterfly. It would appear that all becoming makes about change. In the incarnation, though, John, as I said, is using the term become in a unique manner. So the Son of God or the Word of God does not change in becoming man. 
He remains immutably, unchangeably himself. He maintains the perfect God that he always was. He doesn't in any manner change his divinity. That's impossible. God can't change being God in some way. If he did change, it wouldn't be truly God who is man. He has to remain God in becoming man. Otherwise, it's not truly God who is man. So his immutability is, it, is in, inherent in the incarnation. He has to remain immutably himself as God if it's really going to be God who is man. Likewise, the humanity cannot change in the incarnation because if the humanity changed in some manner, he wouldn't really be man that the Son of God is. That humanity is not changed within the incarnation. It doesn't become sort of you know, deified humanity, a godlike humanity. It becomes God, the Son of God's humanity, but it's real humanity. All right. What the term become that means is that the change is neither in the divinity nor in the humanity. But what it means is that the Son of God, remaining who he is as God, now comes to exist as a true man. The change is in the new manner in which the Son of God exists. He existed as God from all eternity, but in the very womb of Mary, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he came to exist as a real human being. And who was born as a real human being from Mary? The Son of God. That's why she's called Theotokos, Mother of God, because who it was was born of Mary was the Son of God. The manner in which he was born is as man. And so we can truly, truly call Mary the Mother of God because she, became, she gave birth to the Son of God who exist, came to exist as man and was born of her. Now, this is the great mystery. The incarnation is a marvelous mystery. I, I think it's more, in some ways, it's even more marvelous, I think, than the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity is obviously the mystery of mysteries, the one God being three persons. Uh, but when you try to contemplate and think about the Trinity, at least you're talking about three persons who exist, all exist as God. They're all they all ontologically exist in a divine manner. But when you talk about the incarnation, you're talking about someone who's God, not only existing as God, but existing as man, man, a life. How can one being, one person exist in two manners? I mean, it's, it's, it's even more mind-boggling than the, than the Trinity, you know? And then the, then the more incredible thing is that because the Son of God exists as man, because he exists as man, while he's impassable as God, he doesn't go from one emotional state or whatever as God. As man, he does. As man, he does. It's the Son of God who is actually conceived. It's the Son of God who's actually born as man. It's the Son of God who actually gets thirsty. He, he never had a drink of water as God, and now he's longing for a drink of water. He gets tired. He gets so tired, he sleeps in a boat in the midst of a storm. How many human beings can do that? Uh, you know, it, 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 you know he, 
he 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 cries. The Son of God never preached. We wept the tear for all eternity. And now, now he cries at the death of his friend Lazarus. Um, and and you know, and ultimately, the Son of God, who never suffered anything as God, there he is being scourged and whipped and crowned with thorns and nailed to a cross, and the Son of God actually dies as a man. And that's those acts, those human acts that bring about our salvation. God did not saving us by divine acts. The Son of God saved us by performing and acting human acts. It was by his human will, it says in the letter to the Hebrews, that we are saved. I've come to do your will. He became man to do the Father's will as man. In the agony in the garden, it's not the Father's my will, but I want to do the I want to conform my human will with the Father's divine will. It's these acts that bring about our salvation. And that's what we celebrate this week. The impassable God, Son of God becomes passable. St. Cyril, who's one of my favorite theologians of Alexandria, along with my good friend uh, Athanasius, uh, they're both good friends of mine, uh, they, they both stressed the impassable God suffers. And Cyril says, the impassable becomes passable. The impassable becomes passable. And it's through those passable acts of a man that the Son of God brings us salvation. Now, this is true of everything Jesus did. When you hear the voice of Jesus, you hear the human voice of the Son of God. To touch the tassel of Jesus' robes is to touch the tassel of the Son of God. For Jesus to stick his fingers into the Death man's ears is the son of God sticking his fingers in the deaf man's ears to heal him. When he touches the leper, it's the son of God with his human hand, and it's through that human hand that he's healed. With the human voice, he calls Lazarus forth from the tomb. These are what's called theandric actions, divine actions done humanly. They're divine because they're done by the son of God. But the action itself is a human action. The touching, the feeling, the speaking, they are all theandric actions. They are all done by the Son of God, who is man. Now, those who wanted it a passable and mutable God, because they wanted him to be one who suffers, etc., have it all wrong. Because what's really important is having the proper sense of what it means for human suffering in relationship to Jesus. Because of Jesus, we, we view human suffering now in a different way. We understand it differently. And we do so because Jesus is the one who died for us so that we can be saved. But he also rose. He's risen from the dead. This is what we're going to celebrate a week from, from today. And because he's risen, 
we're able to be united to him, we cannot forget that we abide in the risen Jesus. We're members of his body of whom he is the head, of which he is the head. We're members of the church, the church that is united to Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. And so we abide in Christ. And because of that, we're assured of forgiveness and eternal life. We're baptized into him. We die and rise with him so that we are now living members of his body. We receive him in the Eucharist, the risen body, the risen blood. We receive the entire Jesus and we abide in him and he abides in us, as he says in John's gospel. We're in the communion of saints. We are, we are united to the saints as much as we're united to everyone else who is Christian. Uh, people don't realize that. They, they think somehow other saints don't, are not active members within the body. They're, they're probably more active than we are. Uh, well, I, they are more active than we are. Uh, but then what happens is when we suffer, when we suffer, we know that we're suffering within the risen Christ. And so the suffering ultimately will not conquer us because not even death will conquer us because we abide in the risen Jesus. And being abiding in the risen Jesus, we always, we live in the hope, we live in the knowledge of faith that the suffering is not the end because we abide in Christ. Moreover, because Jesus is the head of a body, and as St. Paul said, whatever happens to one member of the body happens to a fall. If one member suffers, we all suffer. If one member is blessed, we're all blessed. And Jesus as the head knows that he suffers with his body. Not only do he share, while we share in his resurrection, he shares in our suffering. When Paul was persecuting the Christians, Jesus didn't say to him, why are you persecuting Christians? They're nice people. No, he didn't say that. He says, why, do you why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who in the heck are you? I'm persecuting Christians. Who are you? And he says, I am the Lord. You're per if you persecute Christians, you're persecuting me because I'm the head of the body of the church. And to persecute Christians is to persecute, in a sense, primarily the head. And so as we share in Jesus' risen glory in the midst of our suffering, so he shares in our suffering when we, when, when we suffer. But again, the head and body is suffering knowing, knowing, that ultimately Jesus, as the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, will triumph. His body will triumph because he will come again and raise us up into his glory, where again, every tear will be wiped away. Sin and evil will be finally eradicated completely. Death will be put to death once and for all. Life, happiness, goodness, will reign, and we will share in the full love of God. So in conclusion, 
God and the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are perfect in love, perfect in goodness, perfect in holiness. And that perfect goodness and holiness and love is expressed most fully in the incarnation. And it's overcoming all the sources of evil and sin and suffering through the death and resurrection of evil. And we, through the power of the Holy Spirit in baptism and again in the Eucharist, we are recreated into new men and women. We become one man, one body, one person in Christ. And so because of this, even though we die, we die in communion with Jesus and we will rise from the dead. And while we celebrate the passion and deaths of Jesus this week, we should long for his coming again at the end of time. Again, I don't think we do this. We don't, we're not, we don't long for Jesus to come, but we should long for the day when he returns so that we will be fully like him, fully redeemed, fully risen in glory with him, but not just for ourselves, because only then when Jesus comes again and we fully partake of his risen glory, will we give him the glory that he deserves? He is the Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. There's no name greater than Jesus. And at the end of time, every knee, every knee will bend and every tongue will proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And that is what we should long for, to bend our knee and to proclaim that Jesus Christ is our Lord. Amen. A question from Teresa, just asking for some clarification first. So is Jesus suffering in his mystical body? Yes, yes, yeah, yes. Um, you know, as, as you know, as I have the example that uh, both the fathers of the church, uh, someone like Augustine would point out, but others, and of course, contemporary people as well, is, uh, you know, when, when Jesus appears to Paul, uh, he says, why are you persecuting me? Uh, I mean, Paul was going to Damascus to uh, persecute Christians. But in actual fact, in persecuting Christians who were, were part of the body of Christ, they were persecuting Jesus. And they will point out that in a sense, you know, Jesus being the head uh, is the primary sufferer. You know, uh, you know we, we, we at times can say, well, my stomach hurts. Well, my stomach hurts, but if I'm the one who's sick, you know, uh, and so um, uh, Jesus, you know, he could say, well, Joe Schmo in Damascus is suffering because of Paul, but it, it's really me. It, you know, Joe is, is in my body it's, and I'm the head. So it's, it's me, me that's suffering Jesus, you know, uh, does that, does that help? Yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's go ahead and take a question from someone here on screen. Gregorio, I think you had your hand raised. Go ahead and un unmute yourself. Um, yes, uh, thank you. Uh, Father, um, I um, 
And this is something related to what you just said, uh, answering the, the last question. And um, so I suppose that um, the resurrected Christ is still a, a man. Uh, it, I mean, it still preserves the human nature, but a, a glorious nature. I mean, a resurrected nature. In that sense, I suppose, as having a human body, he can still suffer and be happy and, and so on. Is that correct? Well, well, now, Jesus, in a sense, himself, being glorious, okay, he in himself uh, does not suffer because, he's, in a sense, he's glorious or resurrected. But however, he's not, it, because his body is attached to him, all the members that believe in him and are baptized in, in Eucharistic communion with him uh, form part of that body. So he suffers with, with those who suffer, as Paul says, you know, you know we, we rejoice when the people in the body rejoice. We suffer with those who are suffer. Uh, so Jesus as the head does that. But, you know, it's like the saints in heaven. Uh, on the one hand, uh, they're, well, they're, they're waiting for the, except for Mary, uh, the resurrection of the body, but in what sense they're perfectly happy. But being members of the body, they, they too suffer in communion with uh, the other earthly members of the body. So on the one hand, I mean, Jesus can't become any more perfect than he is in himself, but he's not, again, fully who he is in himself in a way until all the members of his body are fully resurrected and come into full communion with him. Does that, you follow, does that make sense? Does that... Um, it's, it's, it's a mystery. I suppose it's hard to understand, uh, uh, Father. But, but the reason I was asking that is that um, uh, being, you know, when, when Jesus re resurrects, he also, in his body, uh, comes out of time, right? I mean, trans transcends time as well. And therefore, uh, he can be present in his resurrected body throughout human history, right? I mean, well, in sense, his, his body does not become eternal. It's everlasting. So uh, we don't know what kind of time frame there'll be in heaven, but because it's going to be a bodily existence, there's going to be motion, and every, I think wherever there's motion, in a sense, you've got time of some sort. Uh, the medievals had a special word for this that I can't think of at present. But, you know, uh, we, we don't take on the eternity of God. Only God's eternal. And so Jesus, in his Son of God, in his humanity, uh, you know, will, 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 will uh, you know, has motion, you know. Uh, and he can appear throughout history, you know. But, you know, the same, like Mary, Mary appears, uh, you know, uh, every once in a while. As a matter no, of fact, the reason, like yeah. to be the honor. Um, yes, Father. I mean, the reason I was asking that, trying to understand a little bit what you were saying at the beginning uh, uh, about showing anger and compassion and so on. I mean, uh, isn't it a, a Christ that is the one that shows to the himself as God to the Jew? To the Jewish people in the in the column, in the uh, to Moses, uh, uh, you know as well, and so on. Isn't 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 it Christ uh, uh, who, who shows himself uh, 
to Moses? I mean, isn't it the resurrected well, Christ? You, you know, Testament. Well, yes. Uh, uh, you, know, some of, you know, some of the fathers stress that because the father always acts through his word and through the Holy Spirit. Uh, you know, they would say that who appeared to, to who spoke in the burning bush was really uh, the son of God, the word of God. Yeah, yeah. But not as incarnate, not as he's not incarnate yet. It's the son of God, but not as incarnate. It's not Jesus who's appearing to Moses. It's the son of God because he's not yet incarnate. It's a prefigurement of his incarnation, but he's not yet incarnate. N nice, thank you. Um, we have a question coming from Mary. She asks, since we abide in the risen Christ and eventually share his divinity, do we too become impassable and unchangeable? Uh, yes, in the sense that um, we'll be, we'll be, this is what purgatory in a sense is all about. We'll become perfectly loving. There will be no taint of evil or sin or unlove within us, okay? So we'll be perfectly loving, all right? Uh, now, and so we become impassable in the sense of same way Jesus is impassable because we'll be fully passionate in our love. We'll be fully passionate in our goodness, uh, uh, in our holiness. Uh, now, uh, so yes, we will, we will become, uh, uh, you know, impassable as in the sense of Jesus is now impassable. Uh, now, for all eternity, you know, uh, I don't know if I, well, in, in, for all eternity though, you know, uh, uh, do we grow in our, in our comprehension or not comprehension, but do we come, do we share more fully as eternity goes on in, in God's glory? I don't know, uh, uh, but I, you know, Whatever we're doing in heaven, we're we're going to be very active. We're not going to be passive at all. Uh, we're going to be more active than we are now. Although we'll be completely, we won't get tired of doing it. But as as God, you know, is pure act, and the Holy Spirit and the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they're super. You know, you can't get any more active than they are. Uh, so we'll be fully active, and we'll be doing all sorts of things. What they all will be, uh, I'm not sure. But I think, you know, we'll, in one ways, we'll sort of be doing kind of things. We'll do the kinds of things we did on earth now in a glorified manner, you know. Um, uh, you know, um, so, but anyway, okay. Does that help? Is that good enough? Okay. Yes, very helpful. Thank you. Yeah, Annie. Um, I think I saw Ahmed. Did you have your hand raised? Go ahead and take yourself off of mute with your question. Yeah, thank you, Father. Um, so I'm kind of confused. Huh? I'm kind of, I have two questions. One is, does Christ suffer or not? And the second one, what does it mean when we say that Christ enters into our sufferings? Well, does Christ suffer or not? Yeah, well, it depends. Yes, he suffered as man. The Son of God actually really did suffer. He knows, he knows what it means to suffer and die as a man, all right? Uh, and he wouldn't have known that he would, you know, he would never experience that if he did not become it. Now, Christ in heaven, you know, as I said, uh, uh, in, in himself, in one sense, he doesn't suffer, but he suffers with, with his body, in his body, 
because, because he shares in the sufferings of those who are united to him. Was that your second question? No, my second question was, what does it mean to say that God, uh, Christ enters into our sufferings? Well, he enters into our suffering because we are united to him. We're members of his body, so that whatever's happening to us, uh, it's, it, it, you know, it, 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 it bears upon him as the head of the body, all right? Uh, so he's suffering with the persecuted Christians in Nigeria. Yeah, and you know, in a lot of the Muslim countries, Pakistan, uh, you know, he suffers with those in, who get blown over by a tornado, you know. But but remember now, this is Christians. This is part of the problem. If you're not united to Christ, you're suffering in a sense on your own. God knows you're suffering, but you can't reap the benefits of suffering in Christ because you have no hope of the resurrection. And you have, and, and, and also, Jesus himself is not suffering with those who are Christians in the same manner that he is partaking or uh, with those who are, who are Christians, all right? That's why evangelization is so important, is to, to abide in Jesus. It's only if we abide in Jesus that we can truly say the Our Father. Those who are Christians can say the words of the Our Father, but God's not their father in the, in the same manner as we are children of the father because we are united to Jesus, the son. Father, we're getting a couple of questions in about redemptive suffering. Um, yeah. Kelly's asking, when I take on a mortification or choose to suffer rather than, um, you know, begrudgingly um, dealing with one's pain or mitigating pain, Mm -hmm. Is she decreasing the suffering of Christ? Say that last bit again. If if someone chooses to take on a mortification, are they decreasing the suffering of Christ as in helping him to bear suffering? Or how, how does redemptive suffering? Okay. Well, St. Paul, if you remember, at one point says, you know, uh, we contribute uh, to the, the redemptive suffering of Christ. You know, we... we we, uh, we we contribute to the through our suffering. How did, I had it now. Well, how does he exactly say that? Um, we 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 fill up uh, the suffering of Christ. On um, uh, one sense, G, you know, Jesus suffered, and we are redeemed. Okay, uh, and He is the one and only Savior. But those of us, all of us, who suffer. If we we suffer and unite our suffering to Jesus, who suffered for our redemption, we contribute. We can contribute to the building up of the body of Christ and for the conversion of the world, uh, because we are uniting our suffering to the supreme suffering of Jesus, who died on the cross for us. So, like Teresa of Lisieux, for example, you know she. Uh, you know, she saw her suffering as redemptive suffering because she was suffering with Christ, uniting her suffering with the suffering of Jesus' death on the cross for the redemption, for the, you know, uh, sinners, for the conversion of sinners. Uh, you know, Mary at Fatima um, praying the rosary for the, for the uh, conversion of sinners. So our suffering, because we united to Jesus, 
can be redemptive. It can help bring about the uh, conversion of, of, of sinners, make the church more holy. Uh, heaven knows the church needs to be more holy these days. Uh, you know, uh, so uh, yes, yes. You know, penances we take upon ourselves. Uh, you, you know, uh, you know, you know, saints have, uh, you know, fasted, prayed, did extraordinary penances, uh, uh, you know, because they saw it not only as the making of themselves holy, but for the redemption, the making holy of the church and for the conversion of the nations. Absolutely. Okay, so we'll take one more here. Um, Harold's had his hand raised for a while here. Harold, if you'd like to take yourself off a of mute. Yeah, hello. Yeah, can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, hi, Swami. Hi. For the talk. Um, yeah, I was just wondering, um, I had a question about the hypostatic union, and like, if we can understand Our Lady as the Mother of God, then how, how, why is it incorrect to say that God suffers. Say this again. Why is it incorrect to say that God suffers if we can call our lady the mother of God because of the hypostatic union? Well, God is God. God in and of himself or the trinity of it in itself cannot suffer. We suffer because some good is taken away from us, okay? Mm -hmm. We can't take any good away from God or the trinity, you know? Uh, they can't say ouch because you pulled a little bit of their uh, goodness away from them, you know. Uh, but so uh, we say, you know, Mary's the mother of God. But we, but when the Son of God became man, then he, as man, uh, can suffer because some good can take away being away from him, you know. Uh, obviously, they took away his life, which is a bad thing. He suffered in, in, their, in their scourging him, nailing him to the cross, uh, crowning him with thorns. You know, they've taken away his good, his integrity, most of all, in doing that. And so he would, he would, he, he would suffer. But God, we could say God suffers, but we, when we say God suffers, it's as man that God suffers. He doesn't suffer as God. He suffers as, as man. Okay. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Father Wynandi. I think we could probably um, last all evening trying to, you know, better understand and clarify these kinds of things and probably we'll be wrestling with them for the rest of our lives. But thank you so much for this. I don't know if the, the, the participants, uh, I had I have an article in First Things from a number of years ago. If they Google Father Tom Wynandy, does God suffer first things, it'll pop up, okay? And they can download it. Also, uh, you know, I've, I've written a book called Does God Suffer, uh, which I still, I think you can still get on on Amazon, okay? All right? So there, there, there's much more to say that I didn't say, but if, uh, if you're up to it, those would be uh, two places where more of what I have to say can be found. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org 
or call us at 540-635-7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be ever more manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.